Well, if I asked you, what time is it? Your first reaction would probably be to check your watch or your phone and to tell me the hour and minute of the day. But what if, when I asked you that question, we were standing on the sideline of a football game? Then you might respond, not with the day and the hour, you might say, well, it's game time, right? What, the question, what time is it, can mean different things or can have different answers depending on the circumstances. There's more than one way to answer that question. And one way that we don't think about very often, but that is very helpful is this. One, one Bible scholar says that that same question, what time is it, is a helpful way of discovering how someone views the world, how they understand what's going on in the world. And when he says that, he's thinking of how we view time more in line with what Solomon says in Ecclesiastes chapter 3. And as soon as I start to read this, you're going to go, oh, okay, now I know what you're talking about. Solomon says, for everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to break down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to seek and a time to lose. A time to keep and a time to cast away. A time to tear and a time to sow. A time to keep silence and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. There's a time for everything, but what you think it's time for right now says a lot about how you understand the world and understand your place in it. Is it time to wait? Or is it time to act? Is it time for war or is it time for peace? Is it time to unite or is it time to divide? A time to break or a time to build? I raise that question because this morning we're beginning a new sermon series in the book of Acts. And one of the questions that we need to ask as we begin this new study is, what time is it? Not... What time is it on our watch? But what time is it on God's calendar, so to speak? Where are we in God's unfolding plan of redemption? Where are we on God's timetable as we come to the book of Acts? And that's an important question to ask because as Acts begins, we are entering a new era, a new Time. In fact, what the Bible calls the last days. We often think of the last days being the you know little subset of days right before Jesus comes back. And so people will ask, you know, do you think we're in the last days yet? Are, are we getting close yet? But the way the Bible uses that phrase, the last days, is to refer to the whole period of time between Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension and his return. So we are in the last days. The book of Acts is going to make that clear. The book of Hebrews makes that clear. We are living in the last major period of history 
of God's schedule, God's calendar. The apostles were living in it, we're still living in it, and one day it'll come to an end when Jesus returns and makes all things new. We're in a period, like the apostles were, of waiting. But it's a different kind of waiting than the waiting of the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, they were waiting for the Messiah to come for the first time. The apostles were excited when he finally did come. We're not waiting for the Messiah to come. We're waiting for the Messiah to come back. And that's an active waiting. A time of waiting for his return, but also a time of mission, a time of moving forward, a time of things changing. And perhaps most fundamentally, a time of fulfillment. Where the things that had long been promised are finally being fulfilled. And we have the privilege of living in that time of fulfillment and seeing God's promises come to pass. I'm going to read for us this morning just the first five verses of the book of Acts. Help us get started and get oriented to this book. To hear what Luke says under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit here in Acts 1, 1 to 5. He says, in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Now, the book of Acts is a book that you might feel fairly familiar with. Uh, You might think, well, yeah, I think I know pretty much what's in Acts. But if your experience is like mine, pretty much every time I read a book, I think I remember what all is in it. I I realize how much I don't remember and how much maybe I hadn't seen the last time I studied this book. Um, The last time I taught it, the last time I read it. And so my hope is as we study this book together... That we'll not only be reminded of things that we've learned before, but also that we'll see and learn new things that perhaps we hadn't noticed or caught before. The first thing I want you to notice about the book of Acts is this is part two of the story. He says there in verse one, in the first book of Theophilus. So Acts is not the first book. It's the second book. The first book is the Gospel of Luke. Acts was written by Luke, just like the Gospel of Luke was written by Luke. Luke was a man who traveled with the Apostle Paul. In fact, uh, well into the book of Acts, it switches from saying, this happened and that happened, and they went and did this, and they went and did that, to saying, we, we came to this place. We went here. And that's when Luke joins Paul on his journeys and uh, witnessed some of these things firsthand. But he, so he wrote the Gospel of Luke, and then he also wrote the book of Acts, and Acts is sort of part two of the story that he began telling in Luke. It continues that same narrative. It picks up where Luke left off. And at the end of Luke, Jesus ascends into heaven in the presence of the disciples, and that's what's going to happen later in Acts chapter 1 as he picks up the story and then tells us what happened next. 
It's also significant that he uh, uses the word began there in verse 1. He says, in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach. That little word began indicates that Jesus is not finished doing work. Right now, his work of salvation is done, right? His death and resurrection that accomplished our salvation, that's done, that's finished, that was once and for all. But when Jesus ascended into heaven, he didn't sort of, you know, dust off his hands and say, well, I'm finished leaving it up to you guys now. No, he is still at work, even from his throne in heaven at God's right hand. He's continuing to work now through his apostles, through his church. He's the one who sends the Holy Spirit, and he is still at work today. So much so that uh, this book, is, it's usually called the Acts of the Apostles, but it's also been referred to as the Acts of Jesus. Or as one, uh, one book calls it, the Acts of the Risen Lord Jesus. This is Jesus resurrected, reigning in heaven, continuing to work through his people. Luke is going to tell us what Jesus is up to after Jesus has ascended into heaven. The other thing I want you to notice in verse 1 is who this book is written to. He says, in the first book, O Theophilus. Well, who is Theophilus? And what a name, right? What does that name mean? Well, the, the word Theo uh, means God. Theos, Theos means God. And the word Philo means love, right? So this could mean uh, one who loves God. Uh, or another uh, translation that's been offered is it's, it can mean beloved by God. So this could be sort of a nickname that Luke is using for somebody who is trying to remain incognito, so to speak. Um, or it could be his, his real name. What we do have a pretty good idea of about this person is that he was likely a high-ranking Roman official. Right? And, and I'm going to tell you why this is important for us to recognize. When Luke addresses him in Luke chapter 1, he calls him... Most excellent Theophilus. So in Luke, at the beginning of Luke, he also addresses the book to this man, Theophilus. And there he says, you know, here's what I've written for you, most excellent Theophilus. And there are two other people who are called most excellent. And they're referred to in the book of Acts. And both of them are Roman governors. One of them is a man named Felix. And the other one is a man named Festus. They're in Acts uh, 24 and 26. They're both governors and they're both referred to as most excellent Felix or most excellent Festus. Now the reason why that's significant, you might think, okay, this is like way back ancient history. Why are you even talking about this? Here's why this is important. Luke appears to be writing to a Roman official who is, at minimum, interested in Christianity and probably is himself a follower of Jesus. In the beginning of Luke, he tells him, you know, basically like, I know you've heard about Jesus. My goal in this book is to to tell you how things happened in order so that you can be sure about what you have come to believe. And now in, in Acts, he's writing to him again, What is he doing in this book now? Well, there were a lot of disturbances among Christians in the early days of the church. Their apostles were 
all the time, it seemed like, getting thrown in jail, getting beaten, being persecuted. Some of them were being put to death. Paul, everywhere he went, you know, someone has said he either started a revival or a riot. You know, like people were going crazy. And he was getting thrown in jail, and he ends up appealing to Caesar. And uh, so from one angle, it looks like the Christian faith is a problem for the Roman Empire. That these people are disorderly, disrespectful, troublemakers who just need to be gotten rid of. If Theophilus is trying to follow Jesus, and yet is a high-ranking Roman official, he needs to know. Is this group that I'm a part of, is it treasonous? Is it seditious? Is it troublemakers? Is it, is it a problem or not? Because it looks like it. And what we're going to see all throughout the book of Acts is that Luke is going to be highlighting the fact that whether it's uh, the apostles getting thrown in jail in Jerusalem or whether it's Paul appealing to Caesar and having to take his case to Rome where he's under house arrest... All along the way, it's not the Christians who are causing trouble. The Christians are not a threat to the Roman Empire. They're not a threat to order or peace. In fact, they are promoting peace and order and good behavior, right? They are honoring the governing authorities. They're respectful. It's the other people who are getting upset about Jesus, who are opposing Jesus and the apostles, who are causing all the problems. The reason why that's important for us to note is not just for some, you know, history lesson, as interesting as that is for some of us, not maybe for all of us, but what is important for all of us to recognize is what Luke is doing and how it connects to what we need to do right now. And Luke is living and writing in a time when Christianity is new, and therefore there are a lot of questions A lot of things people don't understand. A lot of people who are outside the faith that are looking at Christians going, what are you guys about? Is this like a political movement? Is this something where y'all are trying to like overthrow the empire? Is this something where you're trying to change the whole order of things? What are you guys doing? And so Luke is trying to answer those questions and say, let me show you what we're really about. When Paul preaches in a city... He's not trying to stir up a riot to overthrow the city council or something. What he's doing is he's talking about a man who died and rose and did that to save people. And now when people believe that, yeah, they stop worshiping idols, and that makes the people that manufacture the idols upset because they're going out of business. But Paul's not trying to stir up trouble. He's just talking about Jesus. He's talking about the Messiah. And so he's he's answering these questions that the culture has about Christianity. And in Luke's case, it's because Christianity is new. In our case, though, and so Christianity is not new. Well, it's not new to you, and it's not new to our culture, but it is new to a lot of people. We live in a time when... Not as many people grew up going to church as they did in our grandparents' or our parents' time. Not as many people have been exposed to the Bible as they used to. Not as many people know what Christianity is about as they used to. Many people who aren't a regular part of church, what they think about Christianity is what they see on TV. 
And if you think about what you see on TV about Christianity, what are the three things it looks like it's about? Power, politics, and money. That's what it looks like. If they don't know a real Christian, and they don't go to a healthy church, they might not know what Christianity is really about. It's really about Jesus. It's about salvation. It's about knowing God. It's about having your sins forgiven and having a relationship with God. It's about being in a community of people that have learned to love and serve from Jesus and that want to love and serve others and to tell others about Jesus so that they can believe in Him. We need to be thinking like Luke about how to communicate to the world what Christianity really is and what it really isn't. Because what a lot of people are seeing and hearing is not the truth. Theophilus probably got some wrong impressions about what Christians were up to and what Christianity was about. And Luke was trying to set the record straight, trying to clarify what was really going on. And and we have to do the same thing. The other thing we need to learn from this is that as Luke emphasizes not only what Christianity is about and what it's not about, He emphasizes what it was that the Christians were devoted to and what they were devoted to has not changed from that day to this. What we are devoted to is the same thing that the early Christians were devoted to. As we read about their life, about the, you know, Peter's sermons or Paul's sermons or, you know, the, the way that the church uh, organized itself and the way that Christians interacted with one another, we ought to be able to kind of hold up that mirror and say, okay, is, are we still believing the same faith? Are we still devoted to the same things? Jude says in Jude 3 that the faith was once for all delivered to the saints. That is, what we believe is unchanging. It was handed down to us. It is not altered. It does not change. And we should be devoted to the same faith that the Christians of these early days were devoted to as well. So that's what Luke is up to. That's what Luke is doing. That's who he's writing to, why he's writing this. And then he summarizes for us what the Gospel of Luke was about. Where he says, you know, in the first book I dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. So Jesus' ministry of word and deed. right? What Jesus did and what Jesus taught went together. What he taught was illustrating what he did. right? And what he did was illustrating what he taught. He, He showed what the kingdom was like. Through his miracles, through healing, through casting out demons, through raising people from the dead. And he taught about what the kingdom was like as he taught in parables and preached the Sermon on the Mount and things like that. So he he says, I I told you about all Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, that's his ascension, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. That's their their commission, their instruction, their, their mission to go out into the world and bear witness to him. And notice that he says that these apostles were men whom Jesus had chosen. So as we go through the book of Acts and we see Peter stand up and preach in Jerusalem about Jesus. Or we see uh, Paul going into city after city in the Roman Empire and trying to tell them about Jesus, the Messiah, the Savior, the, the one true God who sent his son and is one day going to judge the world but now offers salvation. In all those times, Luke wants us to know these men who have gone out into the world in the name of Jesus, they did not do that on their own authority. 
They did not appoint themselves as Jesus' spokesmen. Jesus handpicked them and sent them out, giving them authority to represent Him and to speak for Him, so that when we hear them speak in the Scriptures, they are speaking as ambassadors of Jesus Himself. They speak the truth. And so we are supposed to listen as though Jesus himself were speaking to us. And then he says about Jesus in verse 3 that he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs. Right, so you got his suffering there, a reminder that Jesus died, he was betrayed, he was beaten, he was flogged, ultimately he was crucified, he laid down his life so that we might be forgiven of our sin. But not only that, He rose, and he says he presented himself alive after his suffering. So he appeared to his disciples. And we just saw at the the end of the Gospel of John not many weeks ago. He appeared to his disciples. He showed them that he was alive. The resurrection was not something the disciples invented or merely hoped for. It was not wishful thinking. Jesus showed up, showed himself to them, allowed them to touch him ate fish in front of them so that they would see and know that he had truly risen from the dead. He says he did this by many proofs. That's an important word. Proofs. Jesus wanted them to know. He wanted to prove it to them, to demonstrate it to them that he truly was alive. There Faith in the resurrection was not a blind leap in the dark, and neither is ours. God gives us evidence. He gives us proofs in the Word that His promises are true, that He has, in fact, sent His Son to be our Savior. Not only that, He says they appear, He appeared to them during 40 days speaking about the kingdom of God. Again, just like He taught about the kingdom during His ministry, He explained to them more fully after his resurrection, what the kingdom of God was like. And we see that even in, uh, in our scripture reading earlier in Luke 24, when he appears to the disciples and he opens their minds to understand the scriptures. And if you've ever thought, and, I, and I, I've thought this, you thought, man, wouldn't it be amazing if you were with those disciples when Jesus opens their minds to understand the scriptures, or when it says that he interpreted to them all the things in the scripture about himself. Man, that'd be a great Bible study to sit in on, wouldn't it? Well, what we have in the book of Acts is a record of some of that. When when Peter gets up in Acts chapter 2 and preaches and draws these Old Testament prophecies from Joel and Psalm 16 and shows how they're all fulfilled in Christ, where do you think he learned that? He learned that from Jesus, likely during those 40 days after his resurrection, where Jesus was putting all the pieces together for them. And then Peter could stand up and explain to people, here's how it all fits together. So we're going to get a taste of that as we go through the book of Acts ourselves. So Luke is reminding us of the good news, of the offer of the gospel, of what Jesus accomplished for us so that we might be saved if we trust in him. And then finally this morning, he tells them about a promise that is about to be fulfilled. I said earlier that the book of Acts uh, is about the beginning of the age of fulfillment. The Old Testament is a time of promises. 
the New Testament is a time of fulfillment, and that is especially so in the book of Acts. Luke tells us that before he ascended into heaven, Jesus said something to his uh, disciples, his apostles. Verse 4, he says, while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem. Remember, they're not from Jerusalem. That's not where they live. But he wants them to stay there. Why? To wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. See, all through the Old Testament, God was promising to send the Holy Spirit. And even... As Jesus was coming into the world, John the Baptist was telling people, the one who's coming after me, he's so much greater than me that I'm not worthy to untie his sandals. I'm baptizing you with water. He's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. When is that going to happen? Jesus tells his disciples very soon. You stay right here in Jerusalem. You don't leave because that promise from like Ezekiel 36 when God promised to give His Spirit to His people from Joel 2 when God promised to pour out His Spirit on all flesh, on young and old and men and women and all all kinds of people. That promise is about to come to pass. It is about to be fulfilled. You are going to receive the Holy Spirit. Remember, Jesus himself was telling them about this right before he went to the cross. He said, I'm leaving, but I'm not leaving you alone. I'm sending you the Holy Spirit. I'm sending you another helper. I'm sending you the Spirit of truth. He's been with you, but now he's going to be in you. He's going to dwell with you. He's going to be in you and seal you. Paul Paul talks about that in Ephesians chapter 1. This is true of us. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, he says, In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. In other words, you and I, we live in the time of fulfillment. We're not waiting for the promise of the Holy Spirit. If you're a Christian, you have received the promise of the Holy Spirit. When you heard the Gospel, when you believed in Christ, the Holy Spirit came to dwell in you, to seal you, and that means He has marked you as someone who belongs to God, who is an heir of God and a co-heir with Christ, And He is the down payment promising that one day you're going to receive that full inheritance, that fullness of salvation when Jesus returns and we are raised from the dead and brought into the presence of God to dwell with Him forever. So the book of Acts marks a new beginning, a new era of tremendous significance. So significant that you and I are still feeling the effects of it. We, like they, are living in the last days, the last era on God's calendar. 
just as the apostles were. We have the Spirit just as they received the Spirit on the day of Pentecost. We are waiting for Christ to return just as they were. And we have a mission to fulfill just as they did. So what time is it? It is the time of fulfillment. It is the beginning of the new creation. It is time to pray your kingdom come as we bear witness about Jesus to the nations and await his return. Let's pray.